Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this series, we'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece. We'll also be challenged in how we're designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the second mini-series, Paul takes chapters 5-7 through to explore the implications of our gospel-formed identity in Christ and the way it challenges worldly norms in the ways that we handle our relationships. For more information, please visit www.doxa-church.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-11 through 11. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're just following through the letter. Uh, We're going to preach through the whole thing. Uh, If you're new with us, we've been in it for a while. And uh, this is actually Paul's second letter that we know he wrote, but we only have this one as his first uh, in terms of in the Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. Uh, As you know, as from being with us in this text, we have um, been seeing how Paul is responding to some issues they didn't want to tell Paul about, and now we're getting to the part where they, he's responding to particular questions they were asking in the letter that, that they sent to him. Now, in order to understand what's going on, it's helpful to understand that there were two extreme groups in the church in Corinth in regards to sexuality. The one group we talked about last week were the more progressive, uh, and they engaged in sexual immorality. Uh, They they felt free to do it. They not only bought into the lies of their culture, but they actually believed their, their bodies were not spiritual in nature, that what they did in their body didn't actually matter because it was just gonna burn anyway. It was just gonna be destroyed. It wasn't gonna make it through. And so the idea for them was, my body's not gonna last. What I do in my body doesn't last, so it doesn't matter. Whereas Paul says, no, the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells you the body does matter because he rose bodily, is before God the Father in his body uh, representing us and he wants to redeem our bodies and use them for his glory. So that was last week. This week, we're dealing with the other group, the aesthetics. They were a group of people who saw sexuality as since it's pleasurable and it almost feels fleshy, so therefore it must be unholy, so we should just refrain from it altogether. And they embraced an abstinence in marriage 
uh, as an approach to uh, their sexual intimacy. They thought that's what God's people do. They're, to be holy is to disengage. And you gotta remember, the church in Corinth is pretty young. They're only a few years into the faith. They're kind of making up things as they go because they, they don't have the New Testament like we have. So they're trying to figure out what is okay, what isn't okay, and they're swinging the pendulum to extremes as a result. And so Paul has to address this, and so he starts by recognizing that they raised the question, verse one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote unquote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's what they were saying. Uh, It's really important to understand that Paul knows that sex is a good thing, okay? It's a God-given thing. It's a gift from God. So he's gonna address this with a very big picture of God's plan for sexuality that is very, very good. In fact, if you're not yet a Christian or you're new to Christianity and you're not sure what God thinks of sex, uh, it's important for us to just pull out a Song of Solomon for a bit. Uh, I won't spend too much time there, but uh, chapter four, verse 16 says this, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. That means what it looks like, so yes. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's what God thinks of, of sex, okay? Now, if you're, if, if, like I said, if you're new, you've never read the Bible, you wanna know more about it, go and read the whole thing. I'm not gonna read anymore, uh, but uh, God, God loves this. It's his gift. It's not just for procreation, it's also for pleasure. And he designed us that way. And so we wanna step into that then and not as a way of, overindulging in sexually immoral ways, nor in abstinence and not enjoying the good gift God gave us to be experienced in the relationship of a husband and a wife. There's three things that Paul's gonna call them to in light of their overreaction. One, he's gonna call them to mutual submission. He's gonna call them to self-giving service. And he's gonna call them to be a sanctifying presence in their relationships, and in particular, in the case where a spouse is married to an unbeliever. So first of all, mutual submission, verse two. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So probably what's going on is, in many cases, one of the spouses has chosen to go more the aesthetic route, and is choosing abstinence, leading to a divisiveness in their marriage around this particular topic in terms of their sexual relationships with one another. Uh, in some cases, and in many cases, likely, uh, the, the believing spouse was married to a non-believing spouse. So you can imagine what that did to a marriage and you start to hear the rumors circulating in the city, oh, is your, is your wife or is your husband gonna become one of those? Watch out, that's the end of your sex life. You can just imagine the rumor of like God's anti-sex. If you become a Christian, you won't get to enjoy this anymore in your relationship, which couldn't be further from the truth in terms of what God intends. So Paul has to address this and call them to what the scriptures 
will call us to in terms of our bodies and giving them to one another. Now, he also knows that if you got two people, one is saying, I would like to engage in relationships sexually with you, and the other saying, I'm not going to, then the likelihood of them engaging in what we talked about last week, which is sex with a prostitute, is going to go up. Because they're going to want to find that somewhere. And so Paul's saying, for the sake of sexual immorality, you each should have a spouse and you should engage in regular relations with one another so that you can please each other and also protect each other. Now, I want to clarify something here because what I don't want is for a bunch of you to leave here and go, okay, you know that struggle I have with pornography or with sexual immorality or the reason why I'm tempted to have an affair is because you don't please me sexually. That is not what Paul is saying. This is not licensed to blame somebody else for your sexual immorality. Those of you who are single in the room, I don't want you to walk through today's passage and go, yeah, see, like, because I'm not married, that's, I'm not married, that's why I struggle, and that's my excuse. Uh, the excuse should be, I have to own my own sin, I have to own my own body, no excuse. Before God, I have to acknowledge I haven't walked in a pure way. I've not lived like my body belongs to the Lord and he purchased it with his own body and I haven't lived like it's a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells and I haven't honored him with my body and we need to own it. So just want to strongly, as strongly as I possibly can say this to you brothers and sisters, do not blame anyone else for your sin. That goes all the way back to our first parents, right? Adam and Eve, pointing the finger elsewhere. Own your own sexual purity, and if you have walked in sexual immorality, bring that before God, confess that as sin, experience his grace, forgiveness, and cleansing, and be transformed. So I want to make sure that's clear. Paul is also saying, it does help though. (laughs) You get to help your spouse, those of you who are married. Those of you who aren't married, by the way, all these principles that I'm going to walk through, mutual submission, self-giving sacrifice and service, and bringing God's holy, sanctifying presence into a relationship are all for all of us. It's just not within, for you, the relationship of of sexual intimacy. Uh, But those of you who are married, I want to encourage you to remember you get to help your spouse. You don't get to blame each other, but you do get to help each other. And Paul knows that because of the temptation around us, we we need help. And I, I, man, I, I can't tell you how important this passage is for the culture we live in that is so sex-soaked and so always driving you to wrong places. I mean, you are, I was a kid, you had like fine pornography, right? You had to steal it, a magazine or something from a store. It, It shows up on your phone when you don't want it to. Right? Sorry that I just, some of you guys are bothered that I stole a magazine before I was, when I was a kid, but I did. And I, I got, like I shared with you last week, I got exposed to pornography very early and it distorted my view of sexuality and it broke me. And I, I, I regret it. God's forgiven me. God's cleansed me. I'm, I'm set free from it. But man, it, it informed me in all the wrong ways. And if some of you are engaged in that, I just want to encourage you, flee sexual immorality like we talked about last week and receive God's grace, forgiveness. Paul continues as he recognizes, okay, now you're to to serve one another, you're to care for one another. Here's what he says as he calls them to mutual submission. Verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. They would have stopped there and said, yeah, that's, we all know that. that. The culture that we live in says men are over women. But Paul continues, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Paul is moving away from a hierarchical view of sexuality to one of mutual submission, calling them to submit to one another and live with a desire to really surrender to the other for the other's good. To really, I mean, that, that's radical back then. It's still radical today, right? Because these days we think sexuality and sexual pleasure is primarily about me and what I get out of it. In fact, Paul calls them to this sense of mutual submission and self-giving service in this statement. He knows that part of what makes sexual intimacy so beautiful is that it mirrors the love that Christ showed for us, his church, when he laid down his body in submission to God the Father in self-giving sacrifice for our sin. And that, that our sexuality and our relationship to one another is meant to show the world a picture of a kind of submission to God and sacrifice for the other that they might see in our relationship what Jesus did for us. It's meant to be a, a picture, a display of the love of God and what he did for us in Christ Jesus. Which means that Paul is not calling us to a self-centered, demanding approach to sex. Unfortunately, looking at pornography keeps telling you it's all about you. And engaging in ongoing masturbation does the same thing. This isn't about you. This is about his glory. And this is about another's good. Unfortunately, in the culture that we live in, we are being told all the time this is about what you want. This is what satisfies you. This is all about your own pleasure. In a culture of self-fulfillment, even in the church, if we're not careful, we can say, get married and you'll be more fulfilled. Those of you who are single, that's not true. Okay, get married, it gets more complex. Right? Get married, you'll see how much you need Jesus. Get married, you will have a mirror in front of you telling you about your selfishness. And I could keep going and going and going. Stanley Hauerwas says this, destructive to marriage is this self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. It's the Jerry Maguire statement, right? You complete me. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. That's so true. Like, I wake up to a different woman every day. I love her, but she wakes up to a different man every day. When Janie used to describe, you know, that someone would ask, so tell us about your marriage. We, by the way, we just celebrated 26 years this last week. But when people used to ask, you know, tell us about your marriage, and she'd be like, well, you know, year one, I was just waking up to the fact that I didn't even know what I was getting myself into, and I think Jeff just like convinced me to marry him, and I wondered how I ended up there, right? And I'm like, wow, this is great. 
You know, we remember that moment when we were both sitting on the beach in Maui at our, on our honeymoon, looking out at the whale, jumping in the sunset, and asking ourselves, why in the world did we get married? I'm not kidding. Like, we had a major fight in our honeymoon, and we're wondering what we just did. And that continued. And if she describes you uh, year two, it doesn't sound a lot better. And then year three, and all the way up to year 10. I mean, it was like, I remember hearing her describe it. I'm like, man, I'm a terrible man. (laughs) The reality is, it's two people dying to themselves. When I usually do a wedding, I tell people, this is one wedding and two funerals. Because the secret to marriage is die to yourself for someone else is good. It's not easy. So those of you who are single and you go, man, if only I were married, everything would get better. I'm just telling you that's not true. Enjoy your singleness. Next week we'll talk about being single. Now, those of us who are married, it's a beautiful gift. I'm a different man because of it. I'm changed because of what God's done to bring sanctification through marriage. It's not easy, but it's transformative. And this particular topic, I have to just be honest. My wife asked me not to share details. I, I want to honor her request. But I, I will say this. Man, I, I used to be that kid who'd go like, I want Jesus to come back, but not before I get married because I want to have sex. Right? That was me. Right? I, it was all about me. I just, I just wanted to think about how I get pleased, how I get satisfied. But what Paul is saying is what makes marriage great, what makes sex great, what makes relationships great is when each one of us is thinking about the other and their needs, not our own. It's like what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he's speaking to the church in Philippi. He says, have this mind in you which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Just before it, he says, consider other people's interests more important than your own. And then he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if you're a Christian, you have the ability to think differently about people. And he goes on and describes Jesus, who in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And Paul says that that is the the, the life that we have now in Christ, that we have the ability to have the mind of Christ to think of others more important than ourselves, to not only submit to God the Father, but to submit to our spouse in a way that seeks their good more than our own, seeks their pleasure more than our own. Those of you who aren't married, this, this is the way life is meant to be all the time. If you're not yet a Christian, I, I want to let you know that for us, being a Christian doesn't just mean we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our, our forgiveness of sins so that we could be accepted before God and not, not rejected for our rebellion, but it also means that we've been cleansed of our sins, that we be a holy temple in which God by his spirit dwells. And we believe not just in the cross, but in the resurrection, that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he overcame the power of sin in his resurrected body to give us power by his spirit in us to live a whole new life, to love like he loves, to serve like he served, to treat others like he treated us. It transforms everything. And so for those of you who are married, you should have the most amazing sex life. 
You really should. In fact, Christianity shouldn't be known for divorce and for being prudish around sexuality. It should be known for marriages that stay together till we die and sex that's so good that the world wants to become a Christian. Right? Because you have the creator of the universe by his spirit dwelling in you, redeeming your body and enlivening you to things that you could never experience apart from him. That's what he wants for us. But he won't have it if we think it's all about us. We won't have it if we think that we're primarily seeking our own pleasure. This is a spirit of mutual submission and self-giving love that serves the other's interest above our own. So husbands, submit your body. Give yourself to your wife. Think about what satisfies her, what pleases her, what she would like. What I found is my wife would much prefer a back rub, holding a hand, caress, rubbing her feet. Not gonna go any further. Well, you could read Song of Solomon for the rest. And husband, I I want you to hear this. I'm still learning this 26 years in. Sex doesn't start in the bedroom. Generally starts in the kitchen. Washing dishes. Right? Cleaning up after. Someone went, amen. Right? It starts in a posture of servanthood in all the other things. Because then your posture is right. Those of you who aren't yet married, you want to be a good lover one day? Learn how to serve your neighbor. Learn how to serve your roommate. Learn how to serve your fellow worker. Learn how to serve those people in your missional community. Learn how to give yourself away in acts of service for the other's good. In fact, exercise for all of you this week. Not only do I want you to get up in the morning and go, my body is not my own, it's been bought with a price. But then to say, my body is for the glory of God and the service of others. Pray that every morning. And then sit down with the people that are your closest to and say, how might I serve you this week? I try to, my, Janie and I try to have a lunch once a week where we just sit down, how's it going? What's God teaching you? And one of the questions I try to ask you regularly is, how can I better serve you this week? How can I better serve our family? How can I better shepherd this household in a way that mirrors Jesus? I don't always do it well, but I'm trying to do it well. I'm trying to grow in this because I found that the most life-giving way for me is when I give my life away for another. That's the most life-giving way. Grace referred to that at the very beginning of the service, that Jesus says, you want to to save your life? Lose it. Lose it. Give it up. Serve the other. Your marriages, you go, man, our marriage isn't doing well. I will tell you this. The sure way to change what's going on in your marriage is for both of you to submit yourself to Jesus, to invite his spirit to fill your life, and then to surrender your bodies to one another for the service of each other's needs. That is a sure way to do it. I know there's lots of other things that may be coming up in your life, but Paul is calling us to a mutual submission at the same time. Almost every fight that I get in, one of us is not willing to submit. When we both, in fact, I could just pull out of this, when we both have a fight, Janie and I, and we both say, God, help us together in prayer, then the posture of submission before God leads to a posture of submission before each other. 
And your vertical relationship always shows up in the horizontal. Always, always, always. You want a submitted uh, relationship with one another? It starts with one submitted to the maker of you, God himself. He goes on, verse five. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. Once again, mutual submission to one another. Perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again. In other words, this shouldn't go for very long. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this is interesting. Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So he's responding to them saying, we, want, we think we should abstain. And he's going, okay, if that's what you want, you can do it for a season, but you gotta both agree to do it. Can't be one of you going like, hey, I'm out for a couple months, I'm gonna be praying. And everyone's going like, hey, what about me? Like that, that is not allowed here. He's like, you both have to agree it's a season of prayer that you both commit to. So it's not like you're dividing the household over this. You're together coming before God. But he says, I concede this because you're the ones wanting it. In other words, I don't know if you catch this. He's saying your ongoing sexual relationship is as important as prayer. It's that important. You think your prayer life's important? So you're going, I talk to you and you go, I go, how's, how's your week going? How's, you know, how's life going? Yeah, I'm really struggling with being in the word on a daily basis. I'm really struggling with regular prayer. I hardly ever hear anybody say, I'm really struggling with being faithful in sexually pleasing my wife. Now, maybe you don't need to tell me that. Just be clear, you don't need to tell me that. <laughs> But it is interesting that usually when we think about a relationship with God, we stay in the spiritual disciplines of prayer, reading our Bible, and all these other things, but we don't talk about our sexuality. And it's almost like it's the thing we're not allowed to talk about. But if, if we're going to be honest, it's probably the thing that's destroying most of us. We ought to talk about it a lot more. In fact, I'm going to preach this message three more weeks in a row. I'm just kidding. We won't, we'll move on, I promise. Verse seven, I wish that all were as I myself am, Paul says, referring to his singleness, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Next week, we're gonna talk about the gift of being single. It's a beautiful thing. Paul is using a similar kind of statement here as he will later when he speaks about prophecy and tongues. He says, man, Prophecy is, is much better than tongues because prophecy, you can actually understand it. It's in your language and you're speaking in a tongue. It's a different language. Unless it's interpreted, it doesn't really benefit those who are listening. And then he goes on and says, but I wish all of you would speak in tongues. It's the same kind of thing. He's saying, you know, marriage is a wonderful thing. I wish all of you were also single. He's just trying to say they're both really good, but we have to live within the gift God's given us. We have to live in it fully. It's not making one better than the other. Unfortunately, over the history of the church, some have tried to do that. That is not the case. So both, both, I want you to hear this. If you're single, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. You shouldn't, you shouldn't want something else thinking it will make your life better. God has you where you're at for now, and that's a good thing. If you're married, you shouldn't be going, man, I wish I had the days of being single again, Right? Live fully in the station you're in. We're gonna to get to that at the end of this passage. Then he continues. To the unmarried, or literally the demarried, which is those who were married but no longer are. Likely, that's Paul. Most people believe Paul was married because to be a part of the Sanhedrin, which he was a part of, and to be a Pharisee as he was, uh, you had to be married. So most believe that his wife either left him because of his newfound faith or she passed away. So to the unmarried, like Paul, 
and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's the situation. Paul is saying, if you were married and you awakened love, as Song of Solomon talks about, through sexual activity, then you've begun to enjoy it, and to lose your spouse means you're still gonna struggle potentially with that desire. It's better for you to remarry than to stay in a position where you're tempted regularly to get back into sexually immoral behaviors. So that's, that's what he's saying there, okay? So that's, that's the point he's making. And then he goes on, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's referring to Jesus' teaching that comes from Genesis chapter two when God sets up what marriage is, which is between a man and a woman who are naked and unashamed and become one flesh. He says, this is what I have to say about this as he speaks about divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. That's the same word as divorce in their context, not our present day idea of separation, verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, That idea of being remarried, the idea that he's speaking to is she would or he would be looking over the fence and going, I'd like to be with that person instead of this person, so I'm going to get divorced so that I can get remarried. That's the concept. It's not getting remarried in general because there are cases where we're released from our former vows. Sexual adultery is one of them, adultery in marriage. Uh, There's others where you're abandoned by your spouse, which is what he's gonna talk about. But he's specifically speaking to a group of people going, okay, I'm in a relationship, we're not enjoying it, I'd like to find someone else, I'll get divorced so that I can get remarried. That's the idea there. And he says, man, we, we should not be getting divorced. Why? God hates it. Malachi's really clear. God hates divorce. Why? Because it destroys people. Because it hurts families. Now, if you've been divorced, God is gracious and he's forgiving, but you know what I'm talking about. You know how much it hurt. He he hates it when his kids hurt. He hates it when his kids hurt each other. And it doesn't just hurt. It tells a lie about God. Because God is faithful and he doesn't walk away. He doesn't give up on us even when we're unfaithful to him. And so he wants our marriages to represent the truth of what God is like. Of course, Jesus said God did permit divorce through Moses. God gave them a way to be divorced because of their hardness of heart. Jesus says that with a great amount of grief, that marriages don't make it because we become hardened, because we lose love for God and others. Jesus also gives allowance for divorce, as I said, in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, adultery in a marriage. Though I, I, would, I would say this, our, our desire is never to see that happen. If you're in a troubled marriage right now and you're considering leaving, would you please at least come to us and let us help you? We, 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 I, 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 I'll be honest, family, I get so, so frustrated when I hear that someone's getting divorced and they never came and talked to us. They never shared it with their community. They never submitted to one another. They never went and got counseling. It's like, it's hard. Marriage is hard work, but you can't do this alone. You need each other. Unfortunately, our vow, as long as we both shall live, has been replaced by as long as we both shall love. And even that, love doesn't mean anything. For us, love has become lust. 
Love has been become, become infatuation. Love has become attraction. Love isn't looking at all like what Jesus did. Love, according to the Bible, is laying down your life for someone else, giving up your interests for the sake of another. That's what love is, biblically. Ray Steadman says this, people will say, what if a couple is hopelessly incompatible? Well, I have a newsflash. All couples are incompatible. There are personality conflicts and background differences and philosophical incompatibilities in every relationship, but God still says that marriage is for life. After all, that's what Christ-like love is for. It's the industrial strength lubricant that enables two incompatible personalities to mesh without grinding each other to pieces. One of the most beautiful things about marriage for me in this man's life is marriage drives me to Jesus. Marriage says, Jeff, you need a resource better than you to love your wife in ways you won't. It's one of the greatest gifts God's given me is that it's led me to the end of myself and shown me how much I need God and specifically Jesus through his spirit in my life to pour his love into my heart so I can love my wife in a way that looks like Jesus. And it is one of the greatest tools. And some of you are, you're not married, you're single. Well, what about us? That's what mission community is like, Right? So you're going, man, I don't want to be in my mission community. It's too hard. That's because you need the love of Christ for people. I don't want to be in community with people that, that are different than me. Welcome to Christianity. The beauty of Christianity is people who would never be together are now one body, brothers and sisters for eternity. And you know what's beautiful about that? You can't do it without Jesus. You cannot love one another the way he loves without his love. So those who are married cry out for the spirit of God to pour the love of God into your hearts for one another. Ask him to change the way you see each other. Ask him to help you love in ways that are not only mutually submitted to one another, but eager to serve the other at the cost of self. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, Paul clarifies. Now, the reason why he's saying this is he's not trying to lower the, the volume of authority. He's just saying Jesus didn't have to address this in a Jewish context because both spouses were part of the covenant people. Paul's Gentile mission is now different. He's going to a people who don't know Jesus, and when one becomes a Christian and the other isn't, he's got to address that situation. So that's what he's clarifying there, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So here's the situation. Paul knows that when someone comes to Christ and they're married to a non-believer, think about what is going to happen. The non-believer is going, hey, like, I hear that people, like, are, are going to stop having sex with their spouse. Now, is that you? Are you one of them? Because it doesn't look real attractive to have your husband or wife come to faith. In fact, you're going to want to keep them from gathering with the Christians because they're turning your spouse away from you. And so he knows that's going to happen. And in some cases, the non-believer is going to go, I want to get out of this relationship. I'd like to see if I could 
divorce you. This is not working for me anymore. And as they're thinking about being married to a non-believer, they have in their mind Genesis 2 and Jesus' words that the two become one flesh. And what Paul just said last week is that when you become one with someone sexually, you become one with them in a spiritual sense, that there's a mingling of souls that is going on. And so they're thinking in their mind, if I'm a Christian and he or she is not a Christian and we're gonna come together in sexual union, is that gonna make our marriage unholy because I've got someone who hasn't experienced God make them holy through Jesus becoming one with me. Does that make sense? That's what's going on in their thinking. Well, I love what Paul does because, you know, he's a, he's a, his background is a, as a Pharisee knew everything about what makes you unclean. And you'd think he'd pull back into his Pharisaical roots and go, oh yeah, you cannot get yourself, you, when you have contact with another person in that way, you're gonna make yourself unclean. But no, he doesn't say that. In fact, he knows that Jesus, when he touched the leper, the leper became clean. Jesus wasn't infected by leprosy. He knows that the woman who had a flow of blood that lasted for years, she came and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and his garment didn't become unclean like it would have before, but instead she becomes clean just at the touch of his garment. And so Paul knows that we who've been cleansed through the blood shed on the cross of our sins have not only become purified, but we become a holy temple in which God dwells. And so we are walking around with the very presence of the one that when he touched something, it became clean. And so you and I, whenever we enter into something, we bring the holy presence of God that cleanses that transforms, that makes unholy things holy. I mean, it's a, I don't know if you realize who you are. We're walking around as sanctifying presence, as a holy people. And Paul's going, no, holiness is contagious. When you enter into that union with an unbeliever, you're already married to them. He's not saying get married to an unbeliever. He's saying you're already married that's a holy thing. Marriage is a holy thing. And now you have the holy presence of God and you get to sanctify your spouse through the act of sex. Pretty crazy. Paul's saying, no, don't leave. Bring the presence of God that can transform. It doesn't get tainted by sin. It can transform sinful places, situations. Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Just like we talked about a few weeks ago, sin left unchecked in the church is like leaven that works itself through the entire body. Now Paul's going, that's how holiness works too. It works itself through, and it can transform places and people and relationships and household. So if you're here and you're married to a non-believer, step into the presence that you have, that you have the presence of God and bring it to your household. This is good news for every one of us. Don't just think marriage. When you leave today after you go to the training, because I want you at the training if you could be there, and you go later on tonight to a restaurant, you're bringing the holy presence of God into a restaurant. When you tip somebody, you get to bring, the, you make, get to make that tip holy. When you think about your roommates or your coworkers, you get to bring the presence of the holy God and say, I want to sanctify this place for God's glory. See, holy is just, what it means is to set it apart for the purposes God declared were good. Think about who God has called you to bring the holy presence to this week. 
Think about how he's called you to sanctify spaces. Think about your missional community and the, the neighborhood or the missional focus you're trying to go after and say, how, how can we bring the presence of God as we mutually submit to one another, as we sacrificially serve and give of ourselves for the sake of another? And how can we do it in such a way that we're filled with the spirit of God so the presence of God sanctifies the space we're in? But what if the person I'm married to doesn't want to stay with me? They asked. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, which means they're no longer bound to their vows that they made. God's called you to peace. Paul's conceding here. He's saying that's not what we want, but don't make a big fight about it because at the end of the day, who knows, wife, whether you will save your husband who knows, husband, whether you will save your wife. In other words, as much as you'll serve them in giving your body to satisfy them, you also serve them by not putting up a big fight when they just cannot be bound to you anymore. There's, there's, a, there's a submitted presence in all these things to one another, but most importantly to God. And then Paul wants to make sure as he ends that all of us to learn how to be fully present in the place God has us for God's glory. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. That would be an interesting task. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Not one that we're gonna hit on a lot here because most of us aren't asking that question. This one we might be though. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant, which was an indentured servant? It wasn't like slavery that we know of. It was someone who got themselves probably into debt or needed financial help and then became a, a slave temporarily in a particular way of work. Uh, it could be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, you name it, but they put themselves in a place of servitude to somebody else. It was like an indentured servant. Uh, and so he says, were any of you there? Some of you might be thinking, that feels like my job. Okay, well, do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Some of you might need to get out of your job and get a new one. That may be the case, but maybe God wants you there. For he was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. There he goes again, reminding you who owns you. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition you were called, let him remain there with God. Here's the idea. He's saying, some of you are in a situation, you're like, if I could do it over again, I don't know if I would have married this person, but that's where you're at. And you're not a slave to anything, you're, you're, you're not without the power to live under the Lord, you're free. He purchased you with his body so that you'd be set free to serve him with your life, even in a situation that may be hard. So we're going, if only I could get married. No, you're free, you don't need marriage. You need Jesus to teach you and free you up to serve him in whatever station of life you're in. Some are going, I need to get a new job. No, serve him in the job you're at and maybe yes, he'll get you a new one. But if you can't learn how to be faithful in the station he's given you, you're acting like you're a slave to something. Your job is not your master. Your spouse is not your master ultimately. Your desire for a marriage is not your master. Jesus is. Live as free people wherever he has you in life and do it for his glory unto the Lord. Amen? Amen.
That's how we do this. We regularly say, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify you with my body and I'm free to not need anything else to give me deep satisfaction other than you, Jesus. And because I've received it from you, I can give my life away for others. That's how this works. Let's pray that he helps us do that. Father, we come to you. We all are in different places of life. Some of us are in marriages that are not going well. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of submission to you first and then submission to one another. That you would teach us how to serve the other as more important than ourself. Would you fill us with your spirit so we can bring a holy presence into our relationships that we might sanctify our household, our roommates, our classmates, our fellow workers, our neighborhood. Lord, we want your holiness to pervade all that we do. We want it to saturate the world we live in. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory and we need your grace and forgiveness and we receive that, but we also acknowledge we need your power so that we can live like free people who don't have to be a slave any longer to sin or anything else. We want you to be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.